Good morning, everyone. Pleasure to be with you as uh, we continue our study in the book of Romans this morning. Uh, we got a long road to hoe, but we got to start in chapter 1, verse 1. So here we go, and a message that I'm calling, uh, please allow me to introduce myself. And if you're a fan of uh, 70s classic rock, you'll get that reference. If you're not, well, you have to look it up. Uh, let's go to the Lord. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for the book of Romans. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the blessing that is contained uh, throughout this book. And Lord... Uh, we'll take it slow, and uh, Lord, we will learn what you have us uh, learn, and we're just so grateful for this book, Lord, as uh, so many truths are found here. Uh, Lord, teach us what you would have us to know today. Uh, we lift up our sick among us, Lord, uh, especially Diana's on our minds today, uh, and also Sherry Sharp. We just ask your blessings on them both, Lord. Uh, pray for healing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well... Uh, if you are on Facebook, then you have probably gotten uh, some friend requests from like some random people and you're like, I have no idea who this person is. Who is this person who wants to be my friend? And uh, you ask your spouse maybe, you know, do you recognize this name, the name of so-and-so? And, -so? and uh, if neither one of you recognize the name, uh, it's probably a good idea to deny that friend request. Uh, a good rule of thumb is if I can't identify him and my spouse can't identify him, well, then we're not going to be uh, friends with that person. We're just either going to hit delete or ignore or whatever it is you do on Facebook to deny a friend request and uh, you move on with your life because who knows what kind of crazies there are out there who want to be your friends and we have to be careful about who are going to be our friends. Well, in the first century, Facebook didn't exist. And so when somebody sent a letter to somebody else, uh, there was only a couple ways that you could know who the letter was from and whether you wanted to receive it or not. And one way uh, would be for the person who was delivering the letter to tell you uh, who the letter was from. And so in this case, in chapter 16, we understand that it was Phoebe who delivered this letter uh, to the Romans. And so Phoebe might have told them who sent the letter. Or uh, the person who actually wrote the letter would identify himself right at the beginning of the letter. And that was common practice uh, for first century letters. Uh, and so uh, when we think about uh, the book of Romans, I'm so glad that uh, his audience received this letter and didn't deny his friend request, hit delete, ignore, or chuck his letter in the garbage and say, we don't know who Paul is. Uh, we're so glad that they accepted and received that letter uh, because uh, think of how much we would have lost if we did not have the letter to the Romans. Well, uh, in these first seven verses in the first chapter of Romans, Paul was quick to introduce himself, uh, introduce, introduce his message, and to uh, talk about who his audience was. Uh, he was writing to fellow Christians, and it was hard to live by faith uh, in the first century. Uh, most people were not Christian, uh, not unlike our day today, right? It's, it's not easy to be a, a Christian in our day either. Uh, and so these Christians, uh, they were relatively new, as everybody was to the faith in those days. Um, they needed truth, and they needed encouragement. Just like in our day, we need truth, and we need encouragement. And as we go through the book of Romans, uh, we're going to get truth and encouragement, and that exists here in these first seven verses, uh, just like it exists throughout the book of Romans. So there are basically three sections of this uh, little introduction, these first seven verses. Uh, the man, Paul, uh, and then his message, uh, and then his audience. He's going to talk about those. So let's talk about the man first. Uh, Jesus, uh, or Paul, introduced himself <clears throat> to the church in Rome in verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And so uh, we look at this and we see three ways that Paul introduced himself to uh, this church. He called himself first a bondservant. 
Uh, a bond servant is somebody who uh, voluntarily gives themselves into service for another. Uh, remember, Paul was originally Saul, right? Uh, and Saul changed God, or Paul, God changed Saul's name to Paul. And with that name change came a change of identity. Uh, so Saul was uh, an enemy of, of Christ, and he was persecuting his people. He was trying to destroy the church. But when uh, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, uh, Saul's name changed to Paul. And then he became uh, Jesus Christ's greatest advocate, going all over the world uh, trying to make converts. Uh, so this word bondservant means slave. Uh, the Greek word, uh, if you were in Sunday school this morning, you learned, is, is doulos. It's the same word we see here. And as we study Second uh, Peter in, in Sunday school and uh, Romans in here, uh, when we do introductions, we see kind of the same types of greetings. And so the vocabulary uh, is often the same. And we see that between Second Peter and uh, Romans. Uh, but he's a doulos. He's a slave. And uh, scholars in the, uh, of, uh, of our day estimate that as much as maybe half the population of Rome in the first century were actually slaves. Now, for a Roman citizen, and remember, Paul was a Roman citizen, uh, for a Roman citizen, it would be unthinkable to call yourself a slave. Uh, that was for the lower people, not for these esteemed Romans, uh, but not to Paul. Uh, Paul didn't think of uh, being a slave to Jesus Christ in this way. It was a high honor to him to call himself a slave of Jesus Christ, and he loved Jesus, and he delighted to give his life in service to him. So he's a bondservant. He's also called an apostle. That word call is very important. Uh, Paul didn't call himself. God called him to be an apostle. And so uh, Paul made no claim to authority uh, other than the authority that God himself had given to Paul. And so uh, that's the kind of authority he had. Now, uh, when a church is interviewing a pastor for, uh, to, to be a, a pastor of their church, and when this church interviewed me, one of the questions that, that every church should ask the pastor is, tell me about your call. Uh, tell me how God has affirmed uh, your calling to be a pastor in your life, and how have your friends uh, affirmed your calling, and how have they uh, affirmed that you have the spiritual gifts required to be a pastor? Uh, these are important questions, because if a pastor calls himself uh, to be the pastor uh, without God's divine stamp of approval on that, well, he's sure to fail because God is the one who has to call us if we're going to be uh, pastors. Uh, I heard a search committee ask a candidate once, can you see yourself happy doing anything else? Uh, and the answer, of course, if you're called to be a pastor is no. You can't see yourself happy doing anything else. Uh, you're called to do this in particular because uh, if you are called to do anything else, uh, that's the thing you should do. Uh, only if you're called only to be a pastor should you do it. And Paul, uh, he could not see himself doing anything else other than uh, spreading the word of God. He was a willing slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his mission uh, was uh, Christ's mission uh, to the church and to the world. Uh, but he was more than just a pastor. Uh, Paul was an apostle, uh, and this word is from the Greek word apostello, uh, which we get the word to send in its verb form, or sent one, or one who is sent uh, in the noun form. <clears throat> so there are a couple general meanings of this word. In, in the general sense, uh, everybody can be an apostle. Like if I uh, send uh, my, my child to go to the store and, and get a gallon of milk or something, well, I, I've sent him. He's, he's a sent one in that sense, in a very general sense. 
And we are too apostles in a general sense, in the sense that God has called us to witness to the world. But uh, the word apostle here, generally in the New Testament, it's meant to describe the 12 apostles. And Jesus sent them to be his witnesses. And uh, Paul wasn't one of the original 12 apostles, uh, but he was specially sent apart, sent by and with the authority of Jesus Christ uh, to deliver that message of Jesus Christ to the world. Uh, so he's called as an apostle, and he's also set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, we get our English word horizon from this Greek word aphorizo, which means set apart. Do you see horizon at the end of that word aphorizo? Uh, the horizon, uh, when we think about what the horizon is, is a clear line of demarcation between where the earth ends and the sky begins. So this idea of a line is important in this word aphorizo. Uh, God had drawn lines around Paul, set him apart uh, for this commission that he called him to. And so <clears throat> that's what the word aphorizo means. Now, one pretty cool thing is that uh, if you look at this word and you look at the word Pharisee, you can see that they're from the same word group. You see that PH and you see the R and you see that SZ, a three-letter cluster, same cluster. Uh, now, the meaning of the word Pharisee in terms of its root and it, uh, is, is kind of murky. It's really unknown where the word came from, but we do know that the Pharisees considered themselves set apart, uh, aphorizo from the rest of, the, of society. They thought themselves much higher than the rest of society and that the common man uh, was well below them. And so this idea of set apart existed in the Pharisees. And of course, Paul considered himself the Pharisee of Pharisees, set apart for God. But now God called him and set him apart for something different, something new, something better, uh, the gospel of God. And as soon as Paul wrote those words, the gospel of God, uh, all of a sudden he got super excited, right? He, he wrote the gospel of God and then he just can't help himself. He starts talking about the gospel of God. He couldn't even wait to finish his greeting before he dives into it. And so uh, these next several verses are, are really a digression uh, from his greeting uh, where, he, where he wants to talk about the gospel of God before he even finishes his greeting. So if you look at the end of verse 1, uh, in your Bibles, you'll see that it ends with the gospel of God. And then if you skip the next uh, five or six verses and, and look at verse seven, uh, you can see that it would make perfect sense uh, for Paul to write uh, the gospel of God to all who are beloved of God, and we would have a perfectly legitimate greeting. So these middle verses are all this digression <clears throat> because Paul got so excited he had to talk about this gospel of God. So instead of a two-verse greeting, we get a seven-verse greeting, uh, all one sentence, 126 words, uh, our, our grammar teachers would, would, would freak out if we wrote a sentence like that, right? Our fifth grade grammar teachers. So uh, that's not how we normally write. But Paul got so excited, he couldn't put the pen down and wanted to talk about this <clears throat> gospel of God. But Paul was, he was a man on fire for God. He had uh, incredible passion for the Lord. And, and uh, just look at what this one man was able to do because of his passion for the church. And imagine what we could do if we had the kind of passion that Paul had. Just one person person, making an incredible difference for the Lord. Well, Paul used this word gospel uh, a whole bunch of times, about 60 times in Romans, and it's this recurring theme, the gospel of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word for gospel is the Greek word euangelion. Uh, you've probably heard that word before. It means good news. 
And the Romans used to use this word all the time to herald some good thing that happened in the empire. Uh, the, the, the emperor had conquered this person, so some herald uh, brings out the euangelion that we've conquered this province or that, or that the heir to, a thro- to the throne, uh, an heir to the throne has been born. That's the euangelion. But Paul takes this word, he appropriates this word, and uses it now for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the good news. Uh, so, Uh, This is the man, this is the man Jesus Christ, or the man Paul, I'm sorry, and he introduces himself with all this excitement, uh, and he wants now to talk about this message in these few verses uh, of the gospel of God. Let's look at what he has to say about it. Uh, Verses two through four. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we need to notice three things here. Uh, First, that this this gospel was predicted in the Old Testament. Uh, Second, that it was fulfilled in Jesus. And third, uh, that it is offered to the world. Uh, So predicted in the New Testament. That's the first thing we see. Uh, We understand that God did not keep the coming of the Messiah secret, right? This was not some brand new thing. Uh, The Jews, in fact, were waiting for their Messiah to come because God had predicted that this event was going to happen in their holy scriptures. Uh, But then when Jesus came, they didn't recognize him as their Messiah, and they rejected him, and they crucified him. But after Paul started preaching the gospel, the same thing happened to him. Uh, His opponents accused him of being a revolutionary, uh, preaching against the gospel, preaching against the law. And that just simply wasn't true. Uh, Paul was not preaching against the the, the law and against the Jewish people. Uh, Paul was preaching this gospel message to the Jewish people, uh, showing them that the Old Testament scriptures predicted exactly what happened uh, and what happened in Jesus' life. So he showed how Jesus fulfilled the law and how he offered salvation to them, just as their scriptures said. And Paul cited uh, the Old Testament scriptures in the book of Romans over 50 times to show that he wasn't making this up. This is found in their Old Testament scriptures. He could say, go back, look, read your scriptures, look how Jesus fulfilled these things. Uh, from the writings of Moses to Malachi, the entire Old Testament, uh, Jesus fulfilled what was promised in these Old Testament scriptures. And I want us <clears throat> just briefly to consider just a few uh, of these promises. Of course, I could never touch them all in one sermon. It would take a year to go through all these promises, but let's just look at a few of them. Uh, We see Genesis 3.15, for example. Uh, This is the first promise of a coming Messiah. Uh, This verse says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and you shall bruise her on on the head, or he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. These were the words that God said to Satan after uh, what happened in the Garden of Eden when uh, when Satan tricked Adam and Eve uh, and they ate the apple and sin entered into the world. And scholars call this verse the Proto-Evangelion or the first good news, the first gospel because it's the first time in the Bible that we see uh, the promise of a coming Messiah who is going to restore what Adam and Eve lost in the Garden. Deuteronomy 18.15 is, is the verse where uh, Moses writes, God will raise up a prophet from among you like Moses, and he commands uh, that the people should obey this prophet, and that's who, uh, who uh, they were talking about. Thank you, brother. 
Um, so we see that in, the, uh, in, in this Deuteronomy 18, uh, 15 verse. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, is the uh, promise uh, that there would be, uh, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And so uh, we see that that has been fulfilled. Isaiah 11 promises that the Messiah would come from the root uh, of Jesse. Uh, Jesse is David's father, and so that was fulfilled also. Isaiah 53 is the promise uh, of the suffering servant. It, it's the story of how Jesus would atone for the death, or atone for sin on the cross uh, uh, that man committed. And Jeremiah 31 is, is the promise of a new covenant that God would write, uh, a covenant not written on stone, but written on their hearts, uh, their hearts of flesh. And so we see over and over again that Paul's teaching was not new. This was not something that Paul invented. It's found in their scriptures if they would only look. Now, Paul, remember, was a Hebrew of Hebrew, a, Pharisees of, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he had been educated under Gamaliel, a very esteemed rabbi. It was like going to Harvard uh, for Paul. He was very well educated, and no one knew the Old Testament scriptures better than Paul. He just didn't understand them until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then everything Changed And now equipped with this new understanding of the scriptures and this new understanding of the gospel, uh, Paul preached only what the prophets had predicted in the Old Testament from Moses all the way to Malachi and then fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So let's talk about how, uh, the, how these verses are fulfilled, how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and according to Paul's greeting. So in verses 3 and 4, we see that uh, the gospel of God is about a person. Do you see that? Concerning his son, as we read in verse 3. And, and this term son uh, denotes a unique relationship that exists between him and the father uh, that does not exist between anyone else and the father. Uh, Jesus existed as part of the Trinity, uh, eternally existing, uh, coexisting with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And so uh, the Son became a man while still continuing to be God uh, at the Incarnation. And so Jesus is the God-man. He was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, which stresses his humanity uh, at this point. And uh, when we uh, look at that word born, uh, it's the word ginemai which means a change of state of existence. Uh, Jesus has existed eternally, but his new state of existence when he came to be a man changed from the spiritual being to inhabiting human flesh. And, and John used the same word, ginemai, when he wrote, the word became flesh. His state of existence changed from spiritual being to human flesh. And he descended from David, just as the Old Testament predicted, uh, and he lived a human life without sin, which qualified him to be our Savior. And he died to pay the penalty for our sins. So that stresses his humanity. Uh, but then he was declared the Son of God by the power of the resurrection, which stresses his deity. Now, this word declared does not mean that he became God at his resurrection or that God the Father made Jesus God at the resurrection. Uh, the Bible is clear uh, from many verses, including uh, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, that Jesus has always existed and he has always existed as God. But this word declared is an interesting word because it's from exactly this same word group that I mentioned earlier, this aphorizo word group. 
Uh, it means, aphorizo means to set apart. Uh, with the prefix, AP, a, the AP is a prefix, which means from, so set apart from. Without the prefix, harizo just means uh, to be declared, to be marked off, to, to limit somehow, to draw lines around. So the word harizo would be like if I own a piece of property and I put a fence around it, uh, that would denote that this property is mine to the exclusion of all others. Uh, it's set apart uh, as mine and not uh, belonging to anyone else in the world. And so that's what Christ's resurrection with power did. It set him apart. It marked him off. It declared him. It limited everyone else's claim. Uh, only Christ has this authority. Uh, your translation may say he was appointed, or he may have been marked off, or he may have been designated. Uh, the meaning is all the same. Jesus Christ, uh, his resurrection validated uh, these claims to deity and bore witness to it. Uh, and indeed, uh, it declared, it proved, it revealed who he was uh, to the world uh, when it happened. Now, this power that Paul mentioned uh, is nothing less than the power of God. It's the Greek word dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite from. Uh, God's power, when we think about it, is absolutely limitless. It's beyond our comprehension. Uh, by the breath of his mouth, he created the entire universe uh, at creation. And when Jesus comes a second time, by the breath of his mouth, he's going to vanquish all of his enemies at the end. And so we have these two events, the, the beginning, creation, the end, his second coming. And in between those two events, God's power sustains the entire universe. If God stopped sustaining the entire universe for even one nanosecond, the whole thing would disintegrate uh, and it would cease to exist and Jesus demonstrated just a tiny sampling of the power of God when he walked the earth. Uh, he healed people. He turned water into wine. He stilled the sea. Uh, he resurrected people. Uh, that's a small sampling of the power of God. Uh, he even resurrected people from the dead. But even that uh, is a small sampling of what God can do. Uh, if I might say it reverently, uh, these miracles are, are child's play for God. They're nothing. Uh, he could do them in his sleep if he actually slept. Uh, God is just limitless in his power. There's nothing that he can't do. Uh, and so uh, in Psalm 16, we have this, uh, this uh, David prophesying, uh, and it's Jesus actually speaking, uh, David speaking prophetically of Jesus speaking to God. And here's what the verses say. Uh, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also dwell secure securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And we know that David was speaking of Jesus Christ in those verses. Uh, and so uh, God was going to raise him up uh, and not let his body see decay. God's power raised Jesus from the dead. But God was not the only member of the Trinity who was involved in the resurrection. Uh, Jesus had the power to raise himself too. Look at what it says in John chapter 10. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And so it's staggering to think that Jesus allowed himself to be killed by people who would have no power to take his life except that Jesus allowed it. And as staggering as that is, it's even more staggering that he has the power to then re-inhabit his body and give his body life again. 
that is incomparable power. So God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead. Jesus had the power to raise Jesus from the dead. And the Holy Spirit also has the power to raise him from the dead. As we look at verse four, it says, Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, which many scholars think is a Hebrew way of saying the Holy Spirit, that phrase, according to the spirit of holiness. Now, other scholars disagree with that, uh, but Romans 8.11 leaves no doubt uh, that the Holy Spirit has the power. Uh, but if the spirit of him that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells within you. So we see the Holy Spirit also involved in the resurrection of Jesus. There is no power like this in the entire universe. It's completely incomparable, limitless, incomprehensible power uh, that exists. And this display of power in Jesus's resurrection left absolutely no doubt about who Jesus was, no doubt about his identity as the Son of God, God in the flesh. And now, uh, after the end of uh, several verses talking about uh, who Jesus is, but not specifically naming him, finally, uh, Paul names him. He calls him Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that designation is full of meaning. Uh, Jesus is his personal name. It means he saves. Uh, Christ is his title from uh, the, the Greek Christos and from the Hebrew Mashiach, which means uh, the anointed one. Uh, this is the one who God anointed as savior of the world. And those who receive that salvation will call him our Lord. Uh, it's more, Lord, is more than a respect, a, a title of respect like sir. It's actually uh, the equivalent uh, to the Hebrew word Yahweh. And I want to show you this. Uh, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, these, this, this Hebrew uh, these Hebrew scriptures were uh, translated into Greek in about the third century BC in a translation that's called the Septuagint. Uh, and the first century writers of, of scriptures depended a lot on the Septuagint. It's a very important uh, work. And in uh, the Septuagint, the word Yahweh is translated into the Greek uh, as the word kurios. Uh, and so the same word means Yahweh in Hebrew, kurios in uh, Greek, and Lord in English. Now, it still can be a term that means uh, sir, but for the most part, uh, Paul wrote this, this uh, letter to a Greek audience that, that was largely Gentile, uh, and that audience would have understood when he called Jesus Christ our Lord, they would have understood that term to mean deity, not just a general a term of respect. So Paul was proving uh, how Jesus fulfilled uh, these promises made in the Old Testament in these first four verses of Romans. Uh, and Jesus' resurrection also give us and anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ the assurance that uh, God will raise them from the dead also. And that's what Paul wants to move to uh, in the next uh, couple of verses, that this gospel message is uh, predicted in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in Jesus, and salvation is offered to all. And that's what we see here. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ." What we see is that there is only one way 
to receive God's grace. And it's through Jesus Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul affirmed that here. And, and what do we know about Paul? He was the best Jew you could ever find, right? He was uh, by works, by his knowledge, by his zeal. He was the best Jew that you could possibly find. But he did not receive grace and apostleship uh, by being a great Jew. He received grace and apostleship when he met the risen Jesus Christ and received him as Savior and it's the same for us. If we want to receive the Lord's grace, there is no other way to receive it than through Jesus Christ, not by our good works, not by being a good person. Uh, remember, there is no one good, not even one. We'll read that when we get to chapter 3. God does not owe us grace like a worker is owed his wages. Uh, grace is a free gift to us, and we receive that grace, the forgiveness of sins, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we acknowledge that we are sinners and that he died to pay the penalty of our sin and that he rose again. And this grace is offered to everyone. Do you see it? Among all the Gentiles, uh, that's who it's offered to, uh, which means all the people. It's offered to everyone. And all we have to do to receive this gift of grace is to believe. And if you've never received that gift of salvation, I pray that today is the day that you will submit to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior and receive this free gift of grace today. While Paul received grace and apostleship. Now, grace is God's gift to Paul. It's the gift by which we are saved. Uh, apostleship is the means to bring that gift of salvation to others. And, and Paul was given this gift specifically. Uh, apostleship is an office. Uh, it's not common to all Christians. We're not all apostles in the sense that we occupy the office of apostle. Uh, though in a sense, we're all apostles because we've all been given the Great Commission. We're sent to go and, uh, and bring the good news uh, to the world. But the office of apostle, only 14 people have ever occupied that office. There were the original 12, uh, then Matthias who replaced Judas when Judas uh, hanged himself, and then there was Paul. That's it. Uh, and so they were apostles. Uh, we would call ourselves disciples. But why did Paul use this word apostleship? Why did he say, I have received grace and apostleship? Well, remember, Paul is writing to this Roman church who he's never met before. He didn't start that church there. And, you know, Paul was a pretty famous guy by this point in time, by the mid-50s when this letter was written. And these people had probably heard some things about Paul, and he, they probably heard some rumors about him, maybe some unflattering things about him too. So uh, Paul writes this word apostleship to show them uh, that he has authority uh, that none of these people in his audience could claim. And certainly if people were spreading rumors about Paul, uh, none of those rumor spreaders could, could claim this authority either. Only Paul was given this claim of apostleship. Apostleship. And so he wants these Romans to know who he is and this office of apostleship that he occupies because he wants them to know he's coming to see them. And when he comes, he wants them to know who he is. And so his mission then is to bring about this obedience of faith among the Gentiles for all of his name's sake. So we know that God specifically appointed Paul as this apostle to the Gentiles. And as a bondservant of Christ, Paul obeyed his master. 
And that's why Paul didn't stay in Jerusalem. Paul traveled around that entire Mediterranean region, uh, speaking to Greeks everywhere that he went, uh, trying to convert them to this gospel of God. And when Paul writes these words, the obedience of faith, it means obedience that springs from faith, the obedience that results from our faith. And so Paul is urging his audience not just to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but to obey him as well. And that's what we need to do too. We need faith for sure, but faith shows itself in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, our faith should result in greater obedience to uh, the Lord Jesus and his commands over time. And we're not going to be perfect. We understand that. We are still going to sin, but we should not be happy with our sin. We should never accept our sin and say we just can't change. That isn't true. The Holy Spirit changes us, and we should notice life change over time uh, as we continue to walk uh, along uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, which convicts us. So Jesus needs to be first in our lives if we're going to be able to say that our faith is genuine. That should manifest itself uh, by the way we live. So that's Paul, and that's his message, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he has a few things that he wants to say about his audience. He calls them those who are called as saints in Rome. Now, we've already kind of alluded to it a little earlier, but the the letters of the first century followed a certain format. Uh, There is the identification of the writer, uh, and then there is uh, the identification of the audience, and then there's generally like a word of greeting or salutation. And we got as far as the uh, the identification in verse 1. Then we had this long digression, but now Paul is ready to uh, identify this audience. And, And if you look for that format, you can find it in all of Paul's letters. Uh, But Paul got so excited that he got sidetracked for five verses talking about this gospel of God. But now he wants to talk about his audience. And this is what he says about them. Among whom you are also called, the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he identifies them three separate ways. He calls them uh, that they are called. He says that they are beloved of God, and then he called them saints. So this first term, uh, they are called, uh, is important because this stresses God's divine initiative. Uh, None of us will receive the Lord Jesus Christ unless we are called to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this is necessary for the act of salvation. And this is our first introduction into the concept of election, uh, which Paul doesn't even use that word here, uh, but he's going to get into that uh, concept uh, later in the letter. But he does stress that it's divine initiative. And for Paul, uh, it certainly was divine initiative. Paul, as much as anyone who ever lived, would be able to testify that it was not by his own will that he was saved. In fact, it was just the opposite. Uh, Paul wanted nothing to do with being saved. He wanted to kill everybody who claimed to be saved. He wanted to squash this church of Jesus Christ, which he thought was aberrant to uh, what uh, Judaism taught until he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Uh, my own salvation happened the same way. Uh, Not quite as dramatic as Paul's, uh, but I was hostile to the Lord God. And uh, I could never have been saved if it was according to my own will. I never would have been saved. It would have been impossible. Uh, But praise the Lord that he called me. Uh, Praise the Lord that he called each one of you. Now, uh, you may have a different testimony, but I bet many of you could stand here and testify the same, that if it had anything to do with you uh, because you came to faith later in life, you would never have been saved because you didn't want to be saved. It's only when God called calls us that we uh, can be saved. And so they are called 
uh, of God. And second, they are beloved of God in Rome. Now, that may look like a throwaway phrase to those who are beloved of God in Rome. Well, it's not a throwaway phrase. It's, it's full of meaning. God loves all people, right? We would agree that God loves everybody in his creation, but he has special love for those who have been saved, who have received his son Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, we can just look at the most famous verse in the Bible to see that this is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus, or God loves the entire world, but he has special love for the whoever shall believe because those are the ones who are chosen and those are the ones who will be in heaven with him for all of eternity. And for the rest, uh, John 3.36 says, for on, on the rest of those, those who do not believe, his wrath remains. So we have two categories of people, even though everybody is loved by God. So they are beloved of God in Rome. And finally, Paul called them saints. He said this of them. Uh, the, the third description is that they're saints. And so the saint, saint is from the word hagios, which means holy. Uh, in its verbal form, it's hagiazzo, to be set apart, to be made holy, to be sanctified, all from this word uh, hagiazzo. Uh, and so the idea is separation from something to something else. And so uh, when we become Christians, we are separated from death to life. We're separated uh, from hell to heaven, from Satan to God, from this life of sin to holiness. That's the idea of this word, to be set apart. Uh, and so there is no greater blessing. And when he calls them saints, um, when we see this word in the New Testament, this word is always in the plural form. Uh, it, it, it refers to a community set apart from God. The New Testament never talks about an individual saint, like singled out for sainthood. We don't see that in the New Testament. And that's why we don't pray to saints, right? We, we pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. A saint is just a sinner who has been saved by the grace of God, like you and like me. And I know I don't want anybody praying to me, right? And I'm sure you don't want people praying to you. Uh, we pray to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why we don't uh, pray to saints. So to sum up Paul's introduction, we could say that uh, Paul introduced himself as God's special uh, messenger with a special message. And, and that special message is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose from the dead so that whoever believes will have eternal life. And he wrote this letter to the saints in Rome, who... Uh, Paul described as called of Jesus, beloved of God, and set apart as saints. And then Paul concluded uh, this uh, short little greeting uh, with the familiar grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll say more about that in a minute as we uh, get to our application. So let's think about some applications uh, of this short passage. Uh, the first one is this, being a Christian is a great privilege. God has called us and he has saved us. And not all people are called and saved. Isn't that amazing? And so this privilege that we have, we have to understand not everybody has. But if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you would not have to pay the penalty of your sins, well, you are among the chosen. And so uh, that's good news for us. So we should not ever take our salvation lightly. We have to constantly remind ourselves of the price that Jesus paid, of the love that he showed by dying this agonizing death on the cross so that we could have eternal life, so that our salvation could be purchased. And we never want to forget uh, what, his, what our salvation cost him. 
And secondly, uh, since it is such a great privilege, with great privilege comes great responsibility. Uh, God called us as saints. That means he has summoned us. Uh, and it's not just a description of who we are. It's an obligation of what we have to do uh, now, we, now that we are who we are. Uh, God calls us to live for himself and not for ourselves anymore. And God has charged us with this duty uh, to love Christ, to, to make disciples, to love his people. And that's an obligation that we have to do. And if we aren't doing those things, we need to ask ourselves why we're not doing these things. If we're not doing these things, we're not fulfilling uh, the duty that God has given us to do. So uh, we need to ask ourselves every day, uh, today, start today, uh, what can I do uh, to love and serve Jesus Christ? How can I love and serve the people that Jesus Christ died for? How can I do that today? And then finally, God is the source of grace and peace. God used this greeting, grace and peace, so many times that we are tempted often to skip over it and get to the meat of the letter. But grace, we can't overlook that. This is God's gift to us. It's God's gift of salvation, and it's the joy that results. They're both grace and joy are from the same Greek word, charis, which embodies all of these, this grace, this joy that results from salvation. And this peace is the Hebrew concept of shalom, uh, this idea of total well-being, mind, body, and soul. Uh, these are the things that Paul is, is wishing to them. He, he's imploring them to have it. And we get both as a free gift of God through the cross of Jesus Christ and nowhere else. Uh, do I need to tell any of you that our world is a mess? Do you all need to know that? Our world is a total mess, right? And, and the people in the world are a mess. They have so many problems. We're all fallen and we're broken people. And so if we're uh, walking through this life hoping to receive grace and peace from the world, uh, we're looking in the wrong place, right? We're, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. We need to look for it from God. He's the only one who can give it to us. If we look for it from the world, we're going to be constantly disappointed and disillusioned. So I want us to refocus our attention. Whatever we're going through now, whatever hardship we happen to be experiencing, whatever mountain seems too high to climb, we have to remember that grace and peace is available through God and through God alone and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that you know this, but my job is to encourage you day by day, Sunday by Sunday, that you would lean into the Lord Jesus Christ in your hardships and whatever you happen to be going through because grace and peace without measure is available through God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you as we've just kind of dipped our toe in the water this morning in this incredible book of Romans, and yet still it's so deep that we... We can't possibly uh, get to the bottom. Uh, Lord, we're just so thankful for Romans. We're thankful for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the grace and peace that's available through uh, God our Father and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for it in abundance uh, for each and every member of our church and that we would bring that grace and peace to the world as Paul uh, was commissioned to do as well. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for this gospel of grace and we praise you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.